And, you know, at the time, I didn't really call myself a credible messenger. I kind of just organically used my personal narrative as a means to be able to make connection with the people that I was working with. But over time, I realized that if I went into a meeting and showed up in the ways that I show up fully and authentically, which include my formerly incarcerated background, that I could build a more intentional relationship to the young people that I was working with than my colleagues could who weren't formerly incarcerated. Even when I was incarcerated um, back in the juvenile justice system, I didn't have anybody to look up to or anybody that could actually just show me how things were uh, moved around. When I saw you in your position, that's when it kind of gave me the framework of like, oh my gosh, like, yo, this person has been locked up and he's, he's out here running this organization. How can we make a plan for someone's life without them a part of it and people that have walked in their shoes doing it with them? And I think we need to make deep, deep investments in the well-being of youth in the justice system. This is the Credible Messengers Podcast. Lived experience is expertise. Welcome to the Credible Messenger Podcast. The Credible Messenger podcast is a six-part series that demonstrates that lived experience is expertise by telling stories from the front lines of Credible Messenger's work, as well as examining the research on the efficacy of Credible Messenger's mentoring programs. This podcast is produced by a group of youth policy consultants from AYPF, the American Youth Policy Forum. We believe that dedicated Credible Messenger programs in the legal system, child welfare, K through 12 schools, and college settings are a powerful way to build community and connection for youth success. We want to see Credible Messengers move from the margins to become an integral pillar of every system that serves young people marginalized by systemic inequities. Research supports our claim that credible messages are effective. We want to see more research, more funding for that research, more funding for credible messenger programs, and an elevation of the role so that it receives the respect, training, and adequate pay as other professions. Through this six-part series, we will show you lived examples of this in practice, as well as point you to the research. If you are a young person who faced the legal system, been in foster care, attended low-income K-12 schools, has a parent who has been incarcerated or you were the first from your family to go to college. This podcast is for you. If you grew up in neighborhoods that have been historically excluded, where brown and black youth are robbed of their opportunities to thrive, this is for you. This is episode five, a deeper dive into credible messengers in the youth legal system. I'm your host, Abdul Ali. My background is that I'm Ethiopian. I was born in Ethiopia, but came to America at the age of three and a half. I was previously incarcerated at the age of 15. I spent 18 months locked up in the juvenile facility, Long Creek Youth Development Center. This youth development center is a maximum security prison. When I was younger, there wasn't many role models. Like there's not people that I could look at. And I was confused, but I was in search. The, the confidence in the, in the knowing of something powerful was out there, did not die off. But the reality of not seeing it, of not, of not experiencing it, of not seeing this individual or that individual, that was very problematic for me. And that's when I knew that there was something wrong with the system rather than there's something wrong with me as an individual, as a black individual, as an immigrant, as a Muslim. For this very special episode, I have two esteemed guests. My first guest is Erica King, a policy and program developer, a coach, a facilitator. She currently works as a senior policy associate at the University of Southern Maine. 
My second guest is Hernan Carvente Martinez, Interim Executive Director of Alianza for Youth Justice, founder of Healing Ninjas, a youth leadership coach and a social entrepreneur. I'm gonna start off my conversation with Erica King to help guide some of the context to the reason why credible messengers are effective and needed in the youth legal system. Today we have Erica King. Erica King is at the University of Southern Maine. She's a close friend of mine as well. Uh, and I know a lot of the work that she's done inside and outside of facilities, trying to get kids out of the, the juvenile facility, working out in the community and in the um, adult prison system. Thank you for joining us, Erica. Thank you so much for inviting me to do this with you. It's a deep honor. You know, I adore and respect you so much. Um, so let's see about me. What would I say? I am a white woman, neurodivergent, good troublemaker here in Maine. Happy and blessed to do a lot of this work with you, Ali, in the system where we look at the criminal legal system and the youth justice system. And I think the research is pretty well established on outcomes being harmful to safety and well-being. But I'm really grateful that we can sort of work together to build pathways for young people to be hopefully better off and connected to employment and housing and all the things that we know people need and often don't get from the system. And thank you so much for that. Is there any uh, type of research around um, the criminal justice system, the youth justice system, and, and, and how detrimental it actually is for kids that are incarcerated? I mean, I speak for myself uh, through my own experiences and everything like that, but is there any research based upon that? Of course. I mean, I think there's a preponderance of it at this point, and it's too compelling to ignore that it's a public safety issue. And one thing, you know, I've been kind of barking about for a while now is the length of stay, the long, long lengths of time. If a young person does have to enter secure confinement or a youth prison, like how long does one have to stay? And I think that, you know, the research really confirms that the longer you stay, the, you know, the worse your health and well-being outcomes are both socially and economically and you know, across the board in life domains. And you have taught me personally, as well as other young people that I have had the honor of working with and walking alongside how important it is to support young people in building a life and building peer networks. And I know we're here tonight to talk about credible messengers. And that's like certainly a key component of this work of how do we how do we build enduring relationships to support young people in building a life outside of this system? And, and I think that's the goal. That's the reason why we're in this work. We know the pain. We see it with our own eyes. We see it through our own experiences. We read it on research. We hear it through uh, political and uh, presidential uh, debates and everything like that. Well, another thing I wanted to talk about was the research and the data. I'm going to talk about, you know, some of the national research, but I'll also talk about some of the data that we've been tracking on outcomes in our own state. It's like we talk about the youth justice system and we have to remember that as we do the work to close youth prisons and shrink those systems that while 18 to 24 year olds and 25 year olds are some of the fastest growing segments of our adult criminal processing system. So how can we divert from that adult system and help young people to build a better life? Exactly. And it will, I mean, there's, there's actually a network that you and I work together. Um, it's called Opportunity Scholars, where uh, it was it stemmed from uh, the University of Southern Maine. Is there any way you could talk about that a little bit? Opportunity Scholars, what you and I have called it and how we've held that work is 
you know, there's a lot of talk and research again about the school to prison pipeline and right. and breaks in the education system being a feeder system for juvenile justice system. And you and I both know in your a living testimony of the power of education to <laughs> to build a pathway out. And we know that not just not just recidivism rates, right? It's not just about reducing recidivism rates. It's really about building a pathway to supportive relationships, building economic power building a wealth strategy, building all those things. So Opportunity Scholars is an initiative that Ali and I have worked on together for what, four years, three years? Three and a half years, yeah. I think I've been, yeah, really inspired by Ali and young people like him coming out of our youth justice facility. And what do they need to be connected to higher ed? What do they need in terms of housing? And how do they build peer support with other young people who are sort of lifting aspirations with each other of what they want to be pursuing for goals for not just post-secondary ed, but for career, for what do you want to be learning? How do you want to be contributing? And how do you want to use your intellectual power as a scholar, your lived experience in the system to drive social change. So I love that we get to work at the edge of our own personal transformations, yours and mine, because you keep me honest about so many things in this work. Um, How do we build community with us? It's about, it's always about also like, you know, holding, holding each other accountable in so many different ways um, and, and, and how to learn through these experiences. My question is, uh, is uh, you know, just based on cre- credible messages itself, like why do you think credible messages a needed key component um, when working with youth that are previously incarcerated outside in the community and whatnot? Well, community is, you just said it, the word community is like at the heart of it. Like the system is not going to reform itself and none of us are healed through being passive recipients of services in just formal relationships. That's definitely a necessary part for many of us of healing, but healing-centered organizing, healing-centered practices, connecting with peers who have been through the system, who know it and can be about it and may have maybe come out the other side, it's key. We all want that, you know, when we when we're sort of trying to pursue change. And so, I don't know, also I'm inspired by models like Open Table, you know, where you're just building you, social capital. Could you explain that Open Table? Open Table is another sort of model that inspires kind of my thinking about um, opportunity scholars. There's some compelling outcomes in terms of well-being or financial pieces. It's often done as a housing intervention, but building support or credible messengers, if you will, peer supports. And sometimes, not always people with lived experience, but someone to come alongside and take like a domain. So like if if you were to have an open table and we were going to have one with you or you with me would be like, okay, who's the housing person? You know, who's going to help you figure out what it means to be a tenant, what it means to have a lease. How do you deal with like, you don't know, when you have a leak in your sink or whatever, like who's going to be your go-to person to call those things. And then maybe like, I might be the person that works on education. And if you have to like edit your papers or deal with financial aid and the FAPS or get a transcript, that the idea is that there's a table of people who sign on to support the young person and they're not necessarily paid, but they have some credibility in that domain area to say, I'm going to be there for you and ride, make a year commitment. So you're telling me there's there there, there are just many different concepts, right? That's that of of, of what credible messengers is. Sure. So there's the group concept of it, um, where where there are you know other individuals that have a more expertise on in certain like subjects and um, issues that probably that the youth is probably dealing dealing with um, on their own. Or there's uh, individuals they have that have personal relationships. Is that right? 
Yeah. And I think, you know, if we're talking about credible messengers as a brand and an intervention, I think it's incredible and it's amazing and it's necessary. You know, I'm going to credit some of the credible messengers that have taught me and that I have learned from, you know, Yolanda Johnson, um, Missy Wilkins, Kathy Boudin, Reverend Vivian Nixon, Andrew James, Topeka Sam, and Glenn Martin, who says, you know, the people that are closest to the problem are closest to the solution, but often furthest from the resources to solve it. So right, right. you're my biggest partner in this work, Ali. You know, there's no getting away from it. <laughs> and it's, you it's, keep it's me so, honest about doing it so you're my credible no, it's messenger. so good to hear and i and, and i'm a there's so many things that you there's so many doors that you've opened um on your side and that, that that's helped me uh you know uh acquire just so many things for myself and, and open doors for other other people that i'm trying to do right now so uh but speaking of resources i think this is another like concept that i think we, that we've been talk, kind of discussing a lot more why would it be important for um you know credible messengers to be paid right to be to have a right position to be able to make sure that their voice actually has a say whether it's in the system, whether it's in government, whether it's in policy, or whether it's in the work that they're in the position that they're currently working right now. Beautiful question. And thank you for raising it because I think it's a huge gap, an area of growth and inequity that we all need to do better at. So I'll just say one way that we're trying to address that in Maine is through a second chance grant to do Opportunity Scholars. Give a shout out to Andre Hicks. You know, he's someone who's been home for 17 years and is a credible messenger. And is really going in there every day to meet with young people, get them thinking about their futures, what kind of life that they want to build. And while I'm able to like support that through grant funds temporarily, and we have the evaluation dollars, so I hope to have more research for you after to demonstrate the power of how we're doing this in Maine. And we'll have those outcomes maybe in the next year or so. And we need to pay folks like Andre for his expertise of going in there because he's doing something that none of the staff in there can do. Not not nothing I could do, right? Can't hold a candle to it. Yeah, and I know and there's like a um honest like lack of research. We know that there's a this is a, a new concept that some people have not heard of yet, you know. Um in, in, in working towards uh, uh identifying how to to get this on paper, to get this onto research. And I love all the work that you're doing and I really appreciate it. Like you said, it's resources to invest in credible messengers. And the other thing that's powerful about that as a model is relationships, right? That relationships have to be part of the solution. The justice system is something that fragments and strengthens relationships, you know, even on best days, right? It can cut off and sever relationships inside and outside facilities. So something like Credible Messengers is part of the solution that helps build, you know, the support and not just the punishment, right? The support and the accountability. I think I've seen beautiful work with Credible Messengers helping hold someone accountable in a conversation in a way that a more authoritative approach never could. It's far more restorative, far more effective. And maybe we don't have, you know, all the research that anyone <clears throat> would want to have yet on Credible Messengers. But I do think the foundation of Credible Messengers is built on years and years of research around wraparound principles, the importance of consumer-led change in behavioral health systems systems, in child welfare systems, in any system, really, that the folks that are in that system are directly impacted are the best suited. You know, nothing about us without us. That mantra that I was sort of trained in my early social work days, to me, is based on all of the same research that informs credible messengers. How can we make a plan for someone's life without them a part of it and people that have walked in their shoes doing it with them. And Erica, I wanted to ask if you have some type of research that you could kind of 
base this concept of credible messenger around? So I think some of the research that I want to point out is the work of Walton and Wilson on what's called wise interventions. I'll try to break it down in a in a nutshell. Um, but these guys are focused on what are some of the things that we can build that take maybe a, a stigmatized identity, if you will, and sort of flip it and use it to create power and agency and meaning and belonging and purpose. So Credible Messengers is one example of that. Their interventions talk about building belonging, building meaning, building connection, and the power of doing that, especially for someone that, with a stigmatized identity. Those relationships are enduring and they're important, even if they're brief experiences. So I think we can look to that research to sort of inform the aligned approach. What I would say is Credible Messengers is a really aligned approach with that. Um, we can look to the research around wraparound services and the impact of natural, what's called natural support. Supports sometimes, which I think of credible messengers as that someone that can be paid, but also can be unpaid, have specific expertise that they're bringing to the table, specific relationship to be leveraged and supported. Okay. Um, so, uh, I, Erica, I want to ask you, you know, what's at stake? Show me what the two worlds would look with and without a, a credible messenger. I'm going to give an example of a young person who came home last week. So one of the things that we're doing is supporting young people coming home from Long Creek and connecting with credible messengers. And this per this young person is, is sort of timing out of the system. So there's no supervision or probation after. And um, it was all of a sudden um, a quick release. And as much as there were plans for formal services, um, this young person basically said, like, when I'm out on 18, you know, I turn 18, I'm done with you all. I'm done with formal services. And he dipped, but who is he connecting with? He's connecting with Andre and he's connecting with Brandon, the two folks that have lived experience in the system, the two folks that are going to take the call and return the text, whether it's 10, you know, 10 PM, whether it's, you know, 3 AM and we're doing, you know, supported housing with push in credible messenger support and opportunity scholar support and some formal support too. I think it has to be a, you know, a part of the continuum, but there is no viable plan for a young person aging out of the system and building a life without credible messengers to walk alongside them. I, one of the last things I, I just want to ask you is like, what's, what's your call to action uh, for mm -hmm. the people that are listening? I think it's for me and for everyone else to hold ourselves accountable to ensure that the young people whose lives we're touching directly and indirectly are better off because of our work. And I think we need to make deep, deep investments in the well-being of youth in the justice system. We need economic strategies, education strategies, credible messenger peer support strategies, behavioral health strategies, and they have to be robustly funded. Young people come out of the system, you know, point to our own unsealed fate research with barriers to housing, you know, post-secondary ed. We have to dismantle those one by one with credible messengers walking alongside them. So that's my call to action. Let's get to it. Thank you so much, Erica, for uh, for coming into um, this podcast. We appreciate your your wisdom, your intelligence, um, sharing all the resources you have, um, the relationship I have with you, and and just the willingness to continue this work. Now, I'd like to introduce our second guest, Hernan Carvente Martinez. He is the interim executive director of Alianza for Youth Justice, founder of Healing Ninjas, a youth leadership coach, and a social entrepreneur. 
but he is many more things than this. I invite him to this podcast not only to hear from his experience, but as someone who's experienced incarceration, he has served as a credible messenger to me. His willingness to share his own story inspired me to see a life and career after incarceration and helped intimately guide me to do the important work of both criminal and juvenile justice reform I do today. Thank you for joining us, Hernan. It's a pleasure to be here, Ali. Um, my name is Hernan Carvente Martinez. I use he, the L pronouns, and I am the founder and CEO of Healing Ninjas, Inc., uh, and also currently the interim executive director at the Alianza for Youth Justice. Awesome, awesome. And I um, actually met you through Youth First Initiatives. Could you explain a little bit of what Youth First is? Yeah, for sure. It's exciting to see you here. It's exciting to be on this episode and, and to really just see the growth, uh, you know, from your time at the Youth First Initiative through the Youth Leaders Network. So for those of you who don't know me, for the last five years, I was working at a national initiative focused on closing youth prisons and reinvesting that money in community alternatives. We were a membership organization made up of uh, different state campaigns all across the country, around 12 campaigns exactly. And ultimately, my primary role within that uh, was actually to work with the young people um, who were directly impacted or had spent some time in the prison system and ultimately were a part of these campaigns as not just uh, you know, recipients or, or advisors, but ultimately as actual staff and leaders within these campaigns. Right. And that's actually where I met you. Um, and I and 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 that's where I, I kind of got, got the concept of what a credible messenger actually is, because even even when I was incarcerated um, back in the juvenile justice system, um, uh, I don't I, I didn't have anybody to look up to or anybody that could actually just show me how things were uh, moved around. And I believe like when I saw you in, a, in your position, that's when it kind of gave me the framework of like, oh, my gosh, like, yo, this person has been locked up and he and he's, he's out here running this organization with this with, with, the, with this initiative, you know. So uh, is there any way you can give me a kind of like a base? of a little bit of, 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 of how, we, like, do you perceive yourself as a credible messenger um, at, at all? Yeah, so to make a long story short, when I started at the Youth First Initiative, I had come from doing uh, about six years of advocacy work as being this like formerly incarcerated young person who was sharing his narrative all across the country. And I think I joined the, the Youth First Initiative because I really wanted to uplift the voices and power of other young people who were also directly impacted. And having my personal experience with the system and being able to speak from that lens and being able to offer policy uh, expertise, organizing expertise, and all the different things that I brought, I think just made it easier, right, for me to connect with people like you, with leaders in other state campaigns, and, you know, at the time, I didn't really call myself a credible messenger. I kind of just organically used my personal narrative as a means to be able to make connection with the people that I was working with. But over time, I realized that if I went into a meeting and showed up in the ways that I show up fully and authentically, which include my formerly incarcerated background, that I could build a more intentional relationship to the young people that I was working with than my colleagues could who weren't formerly incarcerated, right? And, and because they also maybe didn't bring some of the, the slang or some of like just the, the mannerisms of being, you know, from the communities right. that I was working with, it like changed the dynamic. And so it just mm -hmm. made, you know, the concept of credible messenger be more real to me over time. Yo, thank you for that, man. And I think that's exactly what we want to capture today. And you say yourself, you are a credible messenger, right? So you didn't know that term at that point. Could you, could you actually just explain exactly what a credible messenger is to you? Yeah, so you're right. I, I, you know, I didn't see myself as a credible messenger. I think being a part of different bodies of people, you know, in, in groups that were doing work and labeled it credible messengers exposed me to the term. 
I think at first I always thought of a credible messenger as it had to be someone that was formerly incarcerated, just doing work in the community with other people who are also formerly incarcerated. And then over time, I realized that the term itself was more expansive, right? Like that this included family members who were directly impacted, that this included people who ultimately maybe went through the legal system, but not necessarily, you know, spend time in a juvenile or adult prison, but ultimately maybe somebody who went through probation or somebody who experienced some other layer of the system, whether it was, you know, through law enforcement or through the court system. And I realized that over time, the definition of credible messenger just really meant a person who had actual lived experience with the issue and or, you know, people that they were actually working with. So ultimately, you know, it wasn't about just direct experience with the system necessarily, but it was this personal experience that people brought to the table that allowed you to actually be a credible messenger for other people, right? Because as a formerly incarcerated person, you know, I can go into spaces where other formerly incarcerated people are at and essentially be heard in a very specific way versus if I go into a room where policymakers are at and ultimately some of them might not have that experience, but they benefit so much from the fact that I'm in the room sharing that live expertise and ultimately, I consider myself a credible messenger because when policymakers are sitting at a table talking about some of these issues with zero experience with the actual issues themselves, and I'm in a room actually providing context, providing lived expertise, that's what makes me a credible messenger, right? It allows me to add value to conversations and provide solutions that maybe, you know, ivory towered folk in universities or, you know, administrators of entire legal systems cannot really think about or even, you know, pull themselves out of that box to be able to think of these solutions. Because again, I bring that expertise to the table. Just want to name that there are amazing organizations all over the country doing amazing work in different aspects of the legal system. Here in New York, we had the Arches Mentoring Program and the Neon Opportunity Network, right, where like you had community-based organizations that essentially were made up of directly impacted people working in partnership with probation in New York City to legitimately create this like ecosystem of support for young people where they weren't just being paired with a probation officer who historically have, you know, traditionally only focused on when the kid makes a mistake, but also being paired up with a mentor who is formerly incarcerated, who is a credible messenger, who they could reach out to for support, but also for guidance around how to navigate different systems in their lives. There's dope work happening in some prisons around the country through the Restoring Promise work that the Vera Institute is doing. You know, an organization that works very closely with that project is Milpa. Uh, and Milpa has been doing really incredible work inside of facilities to build restorative settings for people who are incarcerated, but also for staff who are working with people who are incarcerated, right? Because we forget that everyone who interacts with a, a person who's currently in the system in some way, shape, or form, is experiencing some vicarious trauma and or living with them on a day-to-day, -day, whatever issues that they are going through. And so ultimately, you know, Milpa, which is also formerly incarcerated-led, is inside of facilities doing this dope work and has ultimately contributed to just creating this new culture of really trying to see people for their humanity, even within a facility-based setting. I can go on and on about naming the amount of dope campaigns, the Youth First Initiative, where you had young people who were literally leading entire movements in 12 different states to close youth prisons and reinvest that money into community alternatives. And you had young people literally leading visioning sessions, discussions in community, asking members of the community, if you had X amount of dollars from closing one of these facilities, what would you do with that money? And you had an opportunity to have 
young people with lived expertise talking to other young people with lived expertise, putting their brains together, looking at a dollar amount and just like creatively and, and imagining, imagining how many different potential solutions could come out of that money if it wasn't sitting you know, to, to essentially keep the lights on uh, at a facility in some part of the country. And so, you know, every one of these different examples that I just mentioned is an instance in which credible messengers, young people with lived expertise, formerly incarcerated folk, are ultimately leading different aspects of this work, whether it's in the community, whether it's ultimately within a facility setting, or whether it's in partnership in some way, shape, or form with systems while it's still happening in the community where those young people are from. And so, you know, as we continue to see these examples, my, my hope is that we can keep moving towards this new vision where young people are essentially being supported by other people who have lived and experienced what they have gone through and that systems are really funding and, and funneling resources to those folk as opposed to more facility-based, you know, programming more, you know, punitive measures and ultimately things that are just about retribution and not restoration. Why do you think it's so important, right, to make sure that when people are creating credible messengers, they have everything they need to become successful, right? I think it's important to unpack that a little bit, right? Because success defined by systems and nonprofits and one thing, and then success defined by the individual, right, is a very different thing. I think when I first started in this work, um, you know, 10 years ago, I had this perception in my mind that I needed to live up to these expectations of being this formerly incarcerated kid who could not make mistakes, who had to like show up 100% all the time and in the, you know, behind the scenes, completely on survival mode, completely dealing with trauma, issues at home, lack of money, like the array of issues that I was going through while showing up as a credible messenger, showing up as a young leader in the space 10 years ago just made me realize like how damaging and how harmful it is to put people on this like pedestal of success that is viewed by, again by systems and philanthropy and other people who do this work, but it's also the same thing that applies to people like myself who've been directly impacted where we hold ourselves to this high standard so much that we then don't ask for the help that we need because we don't want to look like we don't know what we're doing. We also don't want to reach out and ask for the mentorship or support because ultimately we also don't want to seem to people like we're not leaders in our own right. And so there's like this convoluted sense of like what it means to be a credible messenger and what it means to have success as a credible messenger that I don't think we always unpack in terms of how harmful it is to have people in this narrative, have people identify in this way, and then not give us the supports that we need to actually become full-fledged, fully supported, holistically driven leaders in a movement to end incarceration, right? To end the very issue that led to us becoming a credible messenger. And I think for me, it's really important to be very intentional about the fact that when we talk about credible messengers now, you know, we still have these issues happening all across the criminal justice sector, right? Where we're like hiring credible messengers as part of large scale initiatives to, again, keep young people in their communities be, being paired up with a credible messenger and that credible messenger doesn't have benefits. They have no training. Mm -hmm. Their salaries are minuscule compared to, you know, EDs of some organizations and ultimately are literally on full survival mode sometimes still showing up for other people who are also in survival mode. Mm -hmm. So how is it that we, again, continue to preach that we're all about supporting lived expertise and people who identify as credible messengers if we don't even give them the resource that they need to actually be successful 
individuals right. personally, not professionally, but at a personal level that their basic needs are met and that they can even show up fully to the work that they're trying to do with the communities that they're trying to serve. Exactly. And I think like that's, that's the most important piece. This isn't a job. It's a career, right? So when you get a, when you have a job, you just get paid by the hour, but when you have a career, you have the benefits that come with it. Right. And wouldn't it, wouldn't it be great, right. To have someone do this on a 40 hour basis. Like this is what they want to do. Why don't we put them in positions because it's only going to help our communities. It's only going to help the kids that are incarcerated. Right. So is there any way you could explain why are we losing credible messengers, right. And these activists that are, that are working within the youth legal system, why, why does it seem like, like some credible messengers are actually leaving when we're, when it's such an important piece to transformative justice. I think it's important to not forget that a credible messenger is essentially using their own lived experience, oftentimes, which is packed with trauma, mm -hmm. to essentially work in a space that is mm -hmm. also still filled with people who are also dealing with trauma. And that in and of itself is incredibly emotionally taxing to any credible messenger. You know, a lot of the people who I know, even myself personally, have experienced extreme burnout from having to pull on that expertise yep. so often. Some credible messengers are leaving this space because we are not doing our part to take care of them, to offer space for them to actually heal completely, and to ultimately give them the resources that they need to not just show up in this work, but again, to actually show up for themselves, their families, and their communities, right? Because it's it's not just about the work, right? Like the work that they do begins with them. And if they're doing well, then ultimately the rest of us see that and we all benefit from seeing other credible messengers doing well. Exactly, man. And I mean, to even tell a personal story, right? Um, even coming into this work for seven years of, of being an activist, uh, I didn't even know I was a credible messenger of seven years, I wasn't getting paid seven years straight, right? We already had hard lives <laughs> growing up, you know, what I'm saying we had to go through a whole system. And now we still can't even get a break to get a position when we're doing the best, one of the best works that's that 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 the community needs, right? If I had the position that I needed, right, with the with the career choice that I made at that at that point, with, with all the education that I have, with all the experience, right? Like, I could continue and do better work i could do i could do more work would you do you would you agree to that yeah i would totally agree i think it's important to to note in what you just said that we are again encouraging people to step into this movement of credible messengers but we're also asking systems philanthropy and people who can fund this work to fund this work because we don't want just credible messengers to do good work on behalf of our communities we also want to fund their futures we want to fund their possibilities we want to fund you know, their, their innovation, right? Incredible messengers come with a wealth of innovation and ideas that ultimately just need funding to actually be implemented and potentially lead to solutions that are, again, community-based, rooted in healing, and that are led by people who have that lived expertise and who communities can actually relate to versus systems that, again, arbitrarily have historically taken mm -hmm. decision-making power, resources, and ultimately just warehousing people you know, far away from the resources that they need, but also far away from their families. And so, you know, to your point, I think it's really important to just uplift that uh, over and over and, and reminding people that as we want, you know, as we engage in these conversations, that we need to do more than just talk about these issues. We legitimately need to make shifts and in investments. And we also need to start coming together as a formerly incarcerated community, as credible messengers, to hype each other up, build each other up, and ultimately right. create a movement that's led by us so that systems in our communities mm -hmm. can feel the, you know, the true power and beauty and brilliance of all of our people. Our value, our value. 
So thank you so much, man. And I like all this information is 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 resourceful. Everybody, you know, what I'm saying that's just looking into credible uh, credible messengers and um, activism and and whatever you would whatever people call it, whatever title um, people want to want to relate to it. But um, I, I want to ask you, what would you say, right? What would you say to somebody that wants to become a credible messenger that's you know been affected by any of these systems? And, and what, then what, what would you say to organizations or like any organization, whether it's or or any systems that want to create positions um, that for for credible messengers? What would you say to these two um, entities? So, to people who are looking to potentially step into the role of a credible messenger. Step into it knowing your worth, knowing that you are very much valuable and that your expertise is important to the work that we are doing in communities across the country. Know that using your lived expertise is a blessing, but also know that like if you need support, if you need to heal, if you need to do other stuff while doing this work, that it's okay to push for that and that we should all be collectively pushing not just to be included in these conversations, but to be given room to heal from the trauma and experiences that legitimately led to us even being credible messengers. And that we need you in this movement now more than ever, because the entire country is you know, facing this narrative of reimagining a world without prisons. And we're all pushing for prison abolition. We're all pushing for the alternative. We're, we're trying to find what is going to change the way in which people are being treated, particularly black and brown folk all across the country, and who best to lead us into this future solution or lead us into this reimagined world than people like us who have lived expertise, who have navigated all of these systems. And to the nonprofits, to the government agencies, to philanthropy who supports this, being very clear with you all that it is your role to support credible messengers at every step of the way. We are very much knowledgeable of the solutions that our communities need, and we just need the resource power and ultimately to be handed the, the opportunity to be able to do this work for ourselves. I, I went through a cognitive dissonance moment while I was incarcerated, right, where I came in being a gang affiliated, having all of these identities of machismo and, and, and just toxicity that led me to a facility. And then all of a sudden, I'm being asked to be a leader a mentor, a coach to my peers who are incarcerated. And I didn't feel like I was that person, but I had someone drilling and drilling and shout out to my mentor and friend who's no longer here, Mr. Lacane, because it's because of someone believing in me and not giving up hope on me that I am the person that I am today. And so I, I, I want to end with that thought that like what we need to do more importantly with credible messengers is also not give up hope in the fact that we, again, are the solution to a lot of the problems that we keep trying to address in the legal system, and that all we need is to be given that opportunity and to be given a label that allows us to claim it and build power and you know support our communities versus all these other labels that have essentially just dragged us down. But thank you so much, Arnon, for coming. Um, I really appreciate uh, uh, you, you being here, giving us your expertise uh, for being um, a credible messenger to myself and so many people out there. Um, and, and we want to make sure uh, we want to push other people to um, uh, be able to to to, ha to have the right position, to have to have the right um, uh, successful and, 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 and maintain like a well, healthy uh, position and in, in, in become, become a credible messenger. So I appreciate your I can't tell you how. Um gratifying it is to see so many more credible messengers, so many more directly impacted people in the movement and to every credible messenger out there. We see you, we love you. Thank you for being a part of this movement. And 
you know, let's just let's just keep turning up, you know, turning up and showing up and uh, making sure that systems are no longer hurting our communities and our people. Thank you for listening to the Credible Messages podcast. We hope that we have inspired you to take action. Let's ensure that more Credible Messenger programs exist and that Credible Messengers are well-paid, supported, resourced, and trained. We need more research. We need more funding for research. We need more formalized, paid rules for Credible Messengers so that all young people marginalized by systemic inequities can have opportunities to fulfill their dreams. This podcast is hosted and directed by a group of youth policy consultants from AYPF, the American Youth Policy Forum including Marmonte Butler, Brittany Lamar, Daphne Sanchez, Ileana Pujols, and me, Abdul Ali. This episode on Credible Messengers in the Youth Legal System was produced by me, Ileana Pujols. Our executive producer is the American Youth Policy Forum. This show is produced, edited, and mixed by Sarah Daggett of Daggett Consulting, LLC. This episode on credible messengers in the youth legal system was directed and hosted by me, Abdul Ali. Thank you for listening.